Now, uh, there's about 10 chapters in 1 Kings roughly devoted to Solomon. Solomon did a lot of stuff, and you can go read like Ecclesiastes and see a lot more of that. Uh, but five chapters uh, of this 10 chapters about Solomon is devoted to the temple. Isn't that interesting? Solomon did a lot of other things, but five chapters are devoted to the temple. Now, we're only going to cover three chapters this morning, um, but before you feel overwhelmed, <laughs> we're going to take a couple of portions of that. I'm going to read a couple of portions. There were moments this week where I felt quite overwhelmed with three chapters of God's Word, uh, so my prayer is that we'll be able to honor, be faithful and honor God's Word but before uh, I read that, I, if you think about the temple, maybe culturally or even in our own hearts, we maybe sit and wonder, why such detail or focus on the temple? Why a temple at all? Isn't that sort of an ancient thing? Isn't that something that's not really relevant for us today? We don't have temples, do we? Actually, there's temples everywhere. And we go in and out of them all the time. Anybody ever go to the shopping mall? That's a temple. Anybody ever go to Bryant-Denny Stadium or Jordan-Hare Stadium or any of those other college football stadiums? It's a, it's a temple. How about our homes? Perhaps those could even be temples where we are worshiping our comfort. It's subtle, isn't it? But we have so many places that are temples, restaurants, our cars, all places of worship, uh, a wise pastor once said that our hearts are idle factories, and we build temples for them all the time. So perhaps this conversation about a temple is much more relevant than maybe we came in thinking. It's also extremely relevant because it's God's Word. God, we listen to Him together this morning. Uh, now, I encourage you to go back and read the three chapters if you haven't done so yet, chapters 5 through 7 of 1 Kings. I'm not going to read all of that. I'm going to read a couple of portions. But before I read, I want to ask you to imagine that you're a, uh Israelite child who has seen uh, wartime. You're now living in Babylon. You're in exile. You're in a foreign land. You have vague memories of... Uh, home in Jerusalem, but you also have scary memories. You have memories of armies coming in, burning the city. You have memories of fleeing your home, trying to escape, only to be captured and carried off. And now you live in a foreign country with foreign customs, foreign uh, well, other religion, even other language. And maybe you're sort of settled in now out there after a few years of time, but you turn to your father one day and you go, Dad, how did we get here? What happened? Does God still love us? Where, where is God? Father, why has he let all of this happen? Does he still want to be with us? You can imagine those questions going through the mind of a young Israelite child or a teenager living in a foreign land. You know why? We, we ask some of those questions today, don't we? In our own way. But imagine, you could imagine the father saying to you, well, son, daughter, the short answer is this. We 
look to the grandeur of the temple, the beauty, the permanence of it, and we thought we had arrived with God, but we missed the heart of God along the way. You see, God's heart was for our heart, but we made it transactional. We thought we were secure in our sacrifices in our shiny new temple, but we missed what those sacrifices were really pointing to. God's desire was for relationship, but we made it transactional because we thought we could control God. Win his love, but we still kept doing the things that we really just wanted to do. And now we're here, son. But I assure you, God has not abandoned his people, even though we may have abandoned him. And then you could imagine your father saying to you something like this, child, sit down with me. I want to tell you about the temple. And that child may have heard something like what, like what we have recorded for us today in 1 Kings. Likely the writer of 1 Kings was writing from exile in Babylon, remembering the temple, remembering its details. This is God's inerrant and infallible word. I'll read Chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 to begin, and we'll work through another portion uh, in a little bit. Now, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram also always loved David, and Solomon sent word to Hiram. You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God, as the Lord said to David, my father. Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now, therefore, command the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. My servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have heard the message that you have sent to me. I'm ready to do all you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servants shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts to, to go by sea to the place you direct. And I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it. And you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired. While Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household, 20,000 cores of beaten oil, Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year, and the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. This is the word of the Lord. I pray and ask the Lord to guide us through this time in his word. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that your word never fails, never fail to speak. So I pray that your spirit would speak in power through a broken vessel 
saved by grace alone. Thank you for your grace. We ask all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever built a house or looked for a house to buy or to move into? Um, one of the things that you do is take a lay of the land, perhaps, survey the land. Uh, some of you may have heard that my family and I, we're uh, moving house soon. We're not, we're not going far, a few miles away from where we are now, but we're looking at that. And, uh, but one of the things that you have to do is, we, or we have to do, is sell our current house. And there's photos that have been taken of our house recently. And one of those is a, a, a zoomed out drone picture of the house, right? And my, my kids were looking at them the other day. And go, Dad, how, how did uh, the photographer get a ladder that high to see the house from that high up? I was like, well, it's a drone. But it was a zooming out to see the property around, to see the, the neighboring houses and community. There is a sense in which Solomon was zooming out uh, in preparation for building the temple. Um, he, he, Solomon, in his wisdom, he zoomed out really far enough to see the bigger story. He zoomed out in two ways. He zoomed out internationally with Tyre and Sidon. And he zoomed out chronologically. He considered the fact that there is a grander story that God is writing with his father David and really, even before all of that, and we're going we're gonna to work through that. But you can imagine, if you're back in the shoes of that young Israelite child in exile, you can imagine your father zooming out as well and telling you about the story of not only the temple, but how God has always desired to dwell with his people. He may have said, you know, you asked about God still, whether or not God still wants to be with his people, son or daughter. I can't help but remember, but before the temple, there was a tabernacle. And before there was a tabernacle, God still showed up with his people. In fact, in the very beginning, God dwelt with Adam and Eve, our first parents, in perfect relationship. It was always his heart to dwell with his people. But Adam and Eve chose life without God. But God had a plan all along. This plan would unfold over history. His timing doesn't work the way ours does. You see, he called Abraham the father of our nation. And one of the first promises he promised to Abraham was what? I will bless the nations bless the nations through you. And here we are, now son or daughter, in a foreign nation, in Babylon. Do you believe that God wants to bless these people too? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. But I get ahead of myself. See, God came to be with his people even before a temple or a tabernacle. God always moved towards us. He told Moses to build a meeting place, and it was portable. It was a tent. Quite a beautiful tent. <laughs> But it was portable. And then you see King David who said, I want to build a permanent house for my God. God said, not yet. There's, you're still not at rest as a nation. There's still a war among you. But I will allow your son to build my house. And so Solomon came along. See God's plan. He, 
he provided for a temple, his temple, in two ways. Through creation and through relationships. So creation. Uh, the cedars that were cut down in Lebanon, they were grown in Tyre and Sidon. God made those cedars. God created those things. That was from his creation. His beauty, the beauty of his creation, but also God provided for them through a relationship that David had with Hiram, king of Tyre. And God gave Solomon wisdom, as he promised, to see all of this, to see those relationships and see that it's all part of a much grander story that God is writing. So, Coming back to us today for a moment, just a point of application here to take away. God was not afraid to let his temple be built with the help of a pagan nation. You realize that we benefit from non-Christians every day. We are, in a sense, in exile, living in this world. Well, we live in fear of being tainted by those around us, the non-believers around us, by the unbelieving world. God was not afraid to allow his temple to be built with cedars that were grown, cut, and hauled by a foreign nation that did not know him. Now, Hiram ended up giving praise to God through this relationship. But let us not run and hide from the world around us. Let us see, let us zoom out. To see the bigger picture of why we are even here now. Why God has placed us in the place where we are. Certainly we don't condone sin or capitulate to culture. But we move towards the people around us. That God might make his presence known to us. Can we zoom out and ask that question. Why am I here in this time, in this place, in this community? How can I relate to the world around me so that they will have a chance to know the presence of God? The way that we know it. So back to Solomon, back to the temple. Uh, Solomon surveyed things, and he's ready to begin construction now. And I'll read that in a moment, but I want to I point your attention to something at the beginning of chapter 6. I haven't read this yet, but I'm just going to read the first couple of verses of chapter 6 because it has to do with the zooming out in timing. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, In the 400th and 408th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zev, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Why all the detail of that timing, the month and the year and all of that, and the reference to the Exodus that was 480 years before this? The writer is taking note of the fact that this is a significant date in the history of God. And its reference point is the Exodus, when God's people came out of Egypt, okay? But the Exodus lasted a lot longer than we might think. In a sense, the Exodus lasted 480 years, because we came to the point now where the temple symbolized a place and a time of rest where it's a place of permanence. Remember, the tabernacle was portable because God's people were on the move, and it was 40 years in the wilderness, but they came into the land, but there was not rest in the land. I think that hints, for one, at the purpose of the temple. Rest. 
a place of rest. But we know that uh, God's people didn't stay at rest with him in that place. They're carried off into exile, which means, uh, as we hear from the book of Hebrews, that there is still remains a rest for the people of God, the greater rest <laughs> that this is all foreshadowing. But we'll come back to that. But I want to read another portion of 1 Kings chapter 6 to look at the construction of the temple. In a sense, it's a zooming in. We've, we've zoomed out and we've surveyed the land and Solomon has seen the relationships around him and now we're zooming in to the actual construction and the detail. And, and there's a lot of detail here, a lot more than I'm going to read. There's a lot of beauty to be seen. I'll pick up in chapter 6, verses 11, read through 22. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you. I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on, on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. He built this within as an inner sanctuary, as the, as the most holy place. The house, that is, the nave in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was, was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. No stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long. 20 cubits wide and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. <laughs> Wow, there's a lot of gold, a lot of cedar. You can imagine the beauty of this. Think about the detail. There's so much we could say here <laughs> that we can't get to, that we don't have time for. But I picked up midway through construction. Okay, we, He surveyed, he planned for the building of the temple. Then the, just before what I read, he built the exterior. The exterior is described in its dimensions. And where I picked up, was where God spoke to Solomon. And then we see the interior being built. Again, it's beautiful. You can imagine, again, put yourself back in the shoes of that Israelite child listening to Father. See, he would have remembered the beauty of the temple. Perhaps he was a priest. Maybe he got to go in and see it, which is interesting. So you can imagine him saying, my child, every, everything was covered with cedar. It was overlaid with gold. The aroma, you could smell the cedar when you went in. Smell the beauty of God's creation. <laughs> the visual was, re was a reflection of such beauty and gold and the carvings and the design. All meant to echo Eden. God dwelt with his people perfectly. And still see it. It stirs such longing to see it again. 
You hear the father's longing. His memory, his senses are stirred. Why a temple? Well, there's a number of reasons for the temple. But one is that in God's gracious uh, gracious kindness to us, he, he speaks to sensory creatures. <laughs> We're sensory beings. He speaks to our senses. We, we uh, resonate with beauty. So God had a beautiful temple built to echo the real thing. But again, Hebrews reminds us that it was merely a copy, shadow of the real thing. Hebrews says the temple was a copy, shadow, the real thing. What things do we look to? Back to us for a moment, back to us today. What things do we look to in hopes that they will be the real thing? Maybe this house will be the one. Maybe this relationship will be the one. Maybe this job will be the one. The one that will what? Fulfill us? Satisfy us? What are we doing when we're thinking that? And by the way, we all do it. We're trying to fill a desire with things not big enough. It's like throwing a a pebble into a well. Have you ever done that? You hear it sort of clangor, kind of bang around in there, and you hear just how hollow and deep it is, and you hear it hit the bottom, it goes bloop. And I go, well, that's kind of what we're doing, looking for the copies to be the real thing for us in this life. It's like throwing something inside our hearts that just sort of clangs around in there a little bit and reminds us how empty we are without the one who can fulfill us. So often we have the mindset of working for the weekend or working for the nicer home or working for the newer car or working for affirmation, working for comfort, working for control, working to silence the noise of shame, working to convince ourselves that we're still a good person. And there is no rest in any of that because we've confused the copy for the real thing. Notice what God said to Solomon in verses 11 and 12. That's where I picked up when I read just a moment ago. It was mid-construction. Construction Construction of the temple is being described. And and midway through, God breaks in and speaks. It's the only time that God spoke in all three chapters directly to Solomon. A couple of lines. He said, now the, the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Solomon, concerning this home that you're building, this house that you're building, you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them. Then I will establish my word with you. I spoke to David, your father. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. What is God saying? He's saying, Solomon, about this temple that you're building, don't forget the heart of the matter. Don't forget... Uh, don't confuse the copy for the real thing. Know what I really want is your heart, Solomon. Heart. He didn't say, hey, if you, if you overlay this building with gold, then I'll dwell with my people. He didn't say, if you cover it with lots of wonderful cedar, then I'll dwell with my people. No, he said, give me yourself. I'll dwell with my people. Now, you can look in the Hebrew and see that it is the, all the uh, if you, if you, if you, all those you's are second person singular. 
meaning he was speaking just to Solomon. What does that mean? Well, it means it was for Solomon. You see, Israel's destiny depended not on the temple, but on the king's faithfulness. Hold on to that. It depended on the king's faithfulness. Hold on to that. Something interesting happened, though, along the way in chapter 7. Now, I'm not going to read chapter 7. There's a lot. Of, go back and read this later. There's so much detail in the beauty of the temple. But there's also something that happened that was mentioned briefly at the beginning of chapter 7. Solomon built himself a palace. Now, it's not bad in and of itself. It says that it took him 13 years to build his palace while it took him 7 years to build the temple. Maybe that was just Solomon was, uh, you know, taking the palace slow so he could devote himself to the temple, but uh, his palace was over twice as large as the temple. You know, again, it's certainly right for a king to have a palace. If After all, it was, in a sense, the people's palace. There was a throne room that he built where he would hear cases of the people to render justice for the people. It was meant to serve the people. So, good. But, Looking back, could it be possible that the palace became functionally more important to Solomon? Could it be? Could be possible. Is it possible that it became a temple of his own comfort? Could be. Solomon did have lots of wealth. When we read Ecclesiastes, he tried it all. He did it all. He had everything at his disposal. Could it be that we're tempted to fall into that same way of thinking? Yes, it's so very subtle and easy. I think it happens to me just about every day. And I have to be reminded of what is most important. Here a quote from a, one commentator as I was studying this week. It really landed. <laughs> the people of the modern middle class West, that's us, are better fed better housed, better equipped with health care than those in any previous age in history. But paradoxically, they, are also, they also seem to be the most fearful, most divided, most superstitious, and the most bored generation in human history. All the labor-saving devices of modern technology, we all have one of those in our pockets, all the labor-saving devices of modern technology have only enhanced human stress, and modern life is characterized by restless movement from place to place, from one experience to another, in frenetic whirl of purposeless activity. Doesn't that ring true? Don't we see it? Don't we see it in us? I see it in me. A wise man once said, mo money, mo problems. In <laughs> this contentment, fulfillment, comes like chasing the wind. Could it be that Solomon was in danger of building a house for God all the while still longing for a real home in this world? Could it be? Could it be that we struggle with that too? Nostalgia is a strange thing, isn't it? It's a strange feeling. A song, a smell, a return to a childhood place stirs memories and feelings and longings. But then nostalgia kind of bites. 
because you realize that, the, that the, it's not the same thing as the feeling that it actually awakens in us. Don't we have this sense of not being at home? Not at home in this world, not at home in our own skin, not at home with the relationships that we have here. Could C.S. Lewis be right? You couldn't get away from not hearing from C.S. Lewis. Warning from me. C.S. Lewis says, if we find that we have a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most logical conclusion is that we were made for another world. Our home is not here. So think again of the Israelite father speaking to you in exile, thinking of the beauty of the former temple, describing it to you, wondering, will we ever get to truly be home? Here's another interesting reality to consider in all this. The vast majority of the Israelite population would have never seen the inside of that temple. All that gold, all that cedar. The priests were able to go in and minister. Your average Israelite would not have been able to go in. Let alone the Gentiles. They wouldn't have even been able to see the courts. And the father would have said to the child, you know, you may not have been allowed in, child, to see the beauty of that inner holy space. And you as the child may have said, why, father? The father would have said, well, God's holy. And we have to have something without sin to cover us. As you as the child may have said, oh, like the sacrifices, right? Well, child, sort of. It's why those sacrifices were meant to be without blemish. But we had to continue to offer them because they were pointing to something beyond themselves. It was a copy of the real thing, shadow of the real thing. When will we get to see the real thing, Father? My child, God is faithful. We must look to him to provide the real thing. Back to us. Praise be to God that we're on this side of Christ. Solomon's temple was destroyed, burned. Herod built another temple. It was destroyed in 70 AD. There was a third temple that showed up. And it was stand. he... he not it, but he was standing by Herod's temple. And he said, tear this temple down, and in three days, I'll rebuild it. <laughs> Talking about himself. On the cross, he, Jesus, the true temple, when he breathed his last breath, having borne the wrath of God for all the failures of all of God's people and all of time, for you and I, you know what happened when he breathed his last breath? And the temple torn in half from top to bottom. So that the writer of Hebrews can say, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Access granted to the real thing. 
the true temple. Remember I said earlier, hold on to, it's down to the king's faithfulness. So goes the king, so goes the people. That's how it went with Israel. Solomon didn't get it right. And neither did the kings that came after him. There was one king. There was one king, Christ, who came. And so goes Christ the king, so goes his people. He was faithful. Amen. The question is, are you in him? Are you in the true king? The heart of God has never changed. He still wants your heart. Gives you himself. The thing that all the copies point to, don't settle for a copy or a cheap imitation. In Christ, there is true rest, true joy, true contentment because the dwelling place of God is truly with man. I'll close with this. I, uh, visit, I've, I've gotten to we- visit Westminster Abbey in London. It is a beautiful cathedral. One of the most beautiful cathedrals I've seen in Europe. It was built with such detail. It's so ornate. I mean, there's, there's wood carvings in that building that a, a little, one little piece of it alone uh, probably took somebody 50 years. I don't, it's amazing. It was originally built in 1060. But in 1220, it was reconstructed to how we know it today, and it took 50 years to do that. It's the location of 40 coronations of British monarchs, burial site for 18 monarchs, and the wedding location for 16 royal weddings. But now you have to pay 24 pounds to go in and see it because it's largely become a museum. Much, much of Western Europe has lost its first love, missed the real thing for the copy. I've also been in the middle of nowhere in Uganda, in a little village called Kabramido, in a small open-air building that many of our storage buildings will probably put to shame. And it was full of people joyfully worshiping the living God with great contentment. I was embarrassed my lack of joy as I watched them worship God with next to nothing. That little shack was full of the real thing, the very presence of God. We have access to it in Christ. May we not lose sight of the real thing, that the dwelling place of God is with man in the person of Christ. Pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for your wisdom and how you have written your story of redemption. That your heart was always to dwell with us, your people. The way you made it, Lord, we squandered it. But you are redeemed. And you have given us the true temple, your son Jesus, where we can taste the real thing. Father, may we not settle for a copy. May we delight with great joy, your son Jesus Christ. Pray these things in his name. Amen.